Hi, I'm John, Father John Deere, and welcome to Pache Bene's Monthly Peace Podcast. I'm recording this in late June 2020 during the coronavirus pandemic and the protests across the nation against racial inequality and police brutality after the horrific police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. I hope you and yours are safe and sound and taking care and social distancing and self-isolating and being peaceful, prayerful, and kind to yourself and everyone. And I hope together we can continue to speak out and march safely against racism and poverty, war, nuclear weapons, and environmental destruction. Recently, I saw Terrence Malick's beautiful new movie, A Hidden Life, about Franz Jägerstatter, the Austrian farmer who refused to join the Nazis and fight for Hitler because of his Christian faith, and was then arrested and jailed in Linz, Austria, and then taken to Berlin where he was tried and beheaded, and who's now been beatified and will soon be canonized. The movie is gorgeous, and it's totally true and inspiring and countercultural. It's also very slow and contemplative and unusual, like Terrence Malick's movies. It's comforting and disturbing. But if you're interested in nonviolence, this is one of the best movies ever, so I urge you to watch it if you can. Franz is certainly one of the most important saints in my own life. And I've been studying him seriously and following him since the mid-1970s, which I know is very unusual because most people hadn't heard of him. And then I became a close friend of his wife, Francisca, who's portrayed brilliantly in the movie, and his three daughters. So I'd like to share some thoughts with you about Franz Jägerstatter's life, my own experience with Francisca and his beatification in Austria, and then I'll offer some concluding lessons from his life, which I hope will encourage you in your own commitment to the nonviolent Jesus and working for justice, disarmament, equality, and peace. So it was the late 1970s, and I was a student at Duke and struggling with what to do with my life, and was close to my grandmother, who was Brooklyn Irish, devout Catholic, and visiting her one time, and she gave me a pamphlet about Franz Jägerstatter. She had a lot of pious religious writings around. The pamphlet deeply moved me, and I still have it to this day. I was really stunned by the story of this young father, husband, and farmer who's practically uneducated. So he's born May 20th, 1907. 1936, he marries Francisca, who's the local sacristan at the little church in St. Radigan, which is a tiny little village in the northwest corner of Austria. Uh, and um, Franz had been a wild young man on a motorcycle, uh, but after marrying Francisca, who was a total saint, uh, he became a saint too, an incredibly devout, and then, as the story is famously told, one of the only people in all of Austria to refuse to fight for Hitler. So when the Anschluss happened in 1938, that's when the Nazis invaded Austria, Overnight, every man was told they're now a Nazi, and they have to fight for the Nazis. But the Nazis were welcomed into Austria, except, of course, by the Jews. To say otherwise is a myth and a lie, I think. But I've heard that uh, in my research, only five men refused to fight for Hitler. And one is this farmer in the middle of nowhere, as you'll see if you watch the movie. And so he started to say... I. You know, from the beginning, you know, I 
totally opposed the Nazis. You know, you walked around the village and everyone said, Heil Hitler, and he would, Franz, would spit on the ground and go, Fui Hitler. Well, he could have been killed for that. In effect, he was. So it's February 1943. He and Francisca run the little family farm. They have three little girls. And he gets this letter saying, okay, go to Linz and turn yourself into the Nazis and join the military where you will be sent off to the Russian front. That's what happened to all those people. And they all died, of course. So what did he, Franz do? He went to his priest. And then he went to all the neighboring priests. And he went even to the bishop in the town of Linz. What should I do? You're a devout Catholic. You do whatever the state says. You go and join the Nazis, and you fight and kill for Hitler. But what about Jesus, Franz asked. I mean, the story is incredible. It's so basic. No, you don't have to follow Jesus that much. The church has always taught that we serve the state first and foremost. Just amazing. But it's amazing that Franz went and talked to the priests, actually, that he got as far as he did. Um, so Franz was just shocked and crestfallen, and as he wrote later, he realized that they were scared, too. So he actually had a lot of compassion, but there was no way he was going to become a Nazi. He's going to daily mass with Francisca, so he turns himself in. They arrest him, imprison him in the lovely little town of Linz for a few months. Then he's taken to Berlin, right into the Hitler high court, because they're so shocked. Nobody, you know, refused. And they condemned him to death, quote, his charge was undermining military morale. And he was beheaded on August 9th, 1943. Two years later to that day, as you know, the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and vaporized tens of thousands of people in a flash. So for me, August 9th has been a very sacred day. So Franz's story was completely unknown to everyone except his family and the few dozen people in his village. And they all hated him and considered him a traitor to Austria and to the faith. And so they hated Francisca, you can imagine, or it's hard to imagine. And then around 1960, this American writer, Gordon Zahn, was traveling in Germany to research a book on why nearly all German Catholics supported the Nazis. Which reminds me, I have a photo somewhere of all the bishops and cardinals of Germany in the early 1940s standing with Hitler all of them holding champagne glasses and wearing swastikas on their arms, the bishops in cathedral. It's, sort of, it's so telling. Well, Gordon Zahn heard about Franz's story and decided to write a book about him. So he went to St. Radican and met Francisca, got all his writings and letters, and, and studied them. And the book is called In Solitary Witness. It came out around 1963, and it made a big impact on many key church people in the U.S., including Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton, and Daniel Berrigan, who all wrote about him. Gordon later then co-founded Pax Christi USA with Eileen Egan, and we became really good friends later when we served on the Pax Christi board for many years. And I used to have long conversations with Gordon about Franz, and traveled with Gordon many times to Europe, actually. So in 1997, after I got out of prison for my plowshares action, the Jesuits sent me to live in Derry and Belfast, Northern Ireland for my Jesuit sabbatical year called Tertianship. And I decided that on my way to Belfast, I would make a little pilgrimage to St. Radigan, Austria. 
and it turned out to be one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was September 1997, and I went to Salzburg, which is a place I really love, and I took these buses to Ostermieting, which is right on the German border, up in that northwest corner of Austria, if you can imagine. Miles and miles of rural countryside, gorgeous, right? But in the distance on all sides, these gigantic mountains, the Alps, just like The Sound of Music, which was just filmed right there. So Mrs. Jägerstatter had written me and invited me to the house, but I couldn't find it. And I remember I walked the last several miles from the bus stop to the village, which is all farmland, and I came upon a little neighborhood of small modern houses on the outskirts of the village. So I went into the neighborhood, and there's this old person around. is an elderly lady in her front yard picking plums from a tree and then eating them. And so I went up to her and I said, can you please tell me where the Jägerstatter family lives? She was bent over on the ground and she stood up with this shocking dignity that I never forgot and a big smile and said, I'm Frau Jägerstatter. Wow, it was just electrifying for me. I was like shaking. This is like meeting one of the saints. You know, Well, it was meeting a saint. She was very thin in old clothes with gray hair tied in the back and she looked exactly like the great New Mexico painter, Georgia O'Keeffe. And she had the same sparkling eyes as Mother Teresa. I'm John, I said, and she gave me this big welcome. She was warm, gentle, kind, joyful, funny, but ultimately very humble and almost shy, but clearly a tower of strength and faith and deep peace and gospel conviction, unlike hardly anybody I've ever met to this day. From the moment I met her, I felt I was in the presence of a great saint on the same level as her famous martyred husband. And that's why I like talking about Francisca as well as Franz. There's no Franz without Francisca. If you see the movie, you see that. Uh, Terry Malick did a great job. Um, imagine her life. Her husband's totally hated, and so she is. Then he's arrested and beheaded. The whole of Austria is celebrating Hitler. The war goes on. He's dead. And she used to raise these three little girls and run the family farm and try to barely get by, no food or money. And she's still serving as the sacristan of the church, which means 6 a.m. mass every day. And this went on for decades. Uh, she brought me into her house and welcomed me and then took me down to the village inn to rest for a bit. I stayed in the, in the village. In the center of the village are these old historic Austrian houses, which are unlike any I've ever seen in the whole world, and I've been everywhere. They're gigantic. So when you have, even if you're a poor farmer, you have this massive three-story stone white house with massive rooms inside and high ceilings and wooden beams and thick walls. They're all over the place. I'd never seen anything. And this she took me to the old Jägerstatter house where Franz and Francisca lived, this massive house, which is now a museum. And um, every night during the week, I would go to Francisca's house for dinner with her and the whole family and the daughters who are all now grown with their own kids, and Erna Putz, who served as our translator. Erna later um, edited Franz's writings. She's probably the number one scholar now on Franz Jägerstatter. And you can get that book um, from Orbis Books, which I highly recommend it. It's just called Franz Jägerstatter, Letters and Writing from Prison. It's a great book. 
and you can also get it from Amazon. So there, every night I had this long, fabulous dinner with very fine uh, Austrian wine with Francisca, the translator, and all the family. And I was just this young priest from the States, just totally happy and enthralled. And for those of you who know me, I just started asking the poor lady a million questions. So like one night she says, okay, John, wait a minute. And she leaves and she goes upstairs to her bedroom and she comes down with a shoebox which she kept under her bed with all of Franz's letters from prison and hands them to me. You know, including the last one that he wrote an hour before he was beheaded for following Jesus. My hands shook as I held her letters. She told me all about them. The next night she brought down all her old photo albums and told me about all the photos of Franz. I still don't know how to describe that week. I consider Franz Jägerstatter one of the top greatest saints and martyrs of all time, period. Remember, he's gotten, he doesn't even know about Gandhi. There's no Martin Luther King. He doesn't know about Dorothy Day. He has no newspaper, no telephone, you know, no news. He doesn't know what's happening. He's way out in the farm, and he's, he's the one who says no to Hitler. I think he changed the meaning of modern sainthood by taking a stand for Jesus against modern warfare and genocide and fascism. That's what it means to be a saint and a follower of Jesus. So Francisca and the family welcomes me into their family and asks me to uh, tell them about myself. I, I told them how Franz had influenced me long ago to become a priest and had pushed me to take real serious steps, including many, many arrests now, uh, against war and nuclear weapons. And now all my friends and I in the peace movement look to Franz as a model and icon. And I remember many times over many decades talking about him being in jail and, uh, and talking about him in talks to hundreds of thousands of people across the country and the world. Uh, and how Franz's life really inspired Thomas Merton, the Berrigans, and Dorothy Day, and so many others. And Francisca did not know any of this. No one from America had really been visiting her up to then. Now people have gone over there. Did you ever imagine that you and Franz would inspire people around the world, I asked her? That your old home would be a national museum? That pilgrims like me would flock to visit you? That you'd meet the Pope? That France would be considered for canonization, I asked her? Never. Absolutely never, she said. I never forgot that. The Nazis killed him, and that was it. Quote, I, mean, I wrote these down later. I, I thought no one would ever know about Franz, ever. And I had to hide his letters under my mattresses for decades. And then Gordon Zahn shows up and writes a book about him, and the story begins to get told. <laughs> this is a story I should not say, but I'm telling this for my friends who are listening, who know me. Well, toward the end, late one night, I said, okay, Francisca, I have a big proposal for you. She looked uh, shocked, and I said, I want to raise a pile of money, 
and I'm going to fly you and Erna and the family to the United States and put you on a 10-day national speaking tour in all the great cities of the country to tell your story about Franz. And then I'm going to take you to meet some of our greatest people like Coretta Scott King and Daniel Berrigan. And she and the others just burst out laughing. She just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. She's never left her village in her whole life except when she went on her honeymoon to Rome with Franz. So there's no way she's going on a speaking tour. And she was on to me, like, who do you think you are? And I said, this was what was so great. I said, okay, fine, go ahead and laugh. Yeah, Francisca, because we really became close. But you have to give me one good reason why. And Francisca leaned forward and whispered, because your wine is so bad. I thought that was so funny. We laughed and laughed, and I never forgot that answer. And that's kind of the spirit of Francisca I was looking for in the movie, which I it's hard to see in the movie, but if you, you, you can look carefully, they did a great job. She's a great saint, and that's my experience of the saints. Incredibly serious, but they have a joy and a laughter that, you know, you just don't encounter elsewhere. I've talked about that many times about the way the sense of humor in Daniel Berrigan and Thich Nhat Hanh and Archbishop Romero, very funny people. Mother Teresa, very funny. So on my last day, she asked me to say mass in the little church at St. Radican, where she had been going every day since the 1920s. It was 6 a.m. and the vestments had to be at least 150 years old from the old Latin mass day, which, so of course, I didn't even know how to put them on, which was very humiliating because here Francisca Jägerstad, the most famous sacristan in modern church history, has to dress me. <laughs> we prayed in German and English. I remember all of that. We would, and I asked, there was just the family and a few locals to come and stand around the altar. But we're in this small church, but it was decorated like it was the cathedral, you know. We prayed for our families and friends, for the church and the world, for the abolition of war and nuclear weapons. And then after the Eucharist, we went outside and prayed by Franz's grave, which has his ashes, which is right along the outside wall of the little chapel. And above it on the wall is a large gold crucifix covered by a typical kind of A-frame dark wooden roof, which is all over Austria. They have a crucifix, and then they have this little roof over it, and there's flowers underneath it. It's very moving. And it had the words from Matthew's Gospel, whoever wishes to save his life must lose it, but whoever loses his or her life for my sake will find it. Well, that day was one of the most moving, spiritual, and liturgical experiences of my life. And as I said farewell, Francisca presented me with a big bag of plums and apples from her yard and some bread that she had been baking all week for me. And I went on and corresponded with Francisca and her family regularly right up to her death at age 100 a few years ago. And some of the family came to visit me in New York, and we had a party with Daniel Berg in my community. So in 2007, when it was announced that Franz Jägerstatter was going to be beatified at Linz, Austria, I knew I had to go. And that day, the cathedral was packed with many bishops and dozens of priests and the Cardinal of Vienna, and I joined them and celebrated the Beatification Mass. And once we were at the altar, 94-year-old Francisca entered the cathedral, and everyone jumped to their feet and cheered when Francisca appeared. And 
the Vatican official read the Declaration of Beatification and this massive 30-foot banner with Francis' photo was lowered and unfurled from the ceiling behind the altar. And again, everyone stood and cheered. But what was so moving was when Francisca walked up and presented to the cardinal this big gold box holding some of Franz's relics and his last letter from prison on the day he was killed. She kissed the box, gave it to the cardinal, returned to her seat, and broke down sobbing. Uh, you know, can you imagine the culmination of, for this long, lonely, solitary witness from the day she saw Franz off to his death to now she's letting go and he's been beatified. But I thought it was a turning point for her and her family. Franz no longer belongs to Austria. He now belongs to the world, to history, to the universal church. For me, it was one of the best events in the institutional church that I've ever experienced because it was so darn political, so real, so hopeful. Get this, it was broadcast live on national TV in Austria and Germany on the national holiday for Austria. So um, this would be like broadcasting on all the networks on July 4th, the beatification of Dorothy Day. You'd be like, what? On July 4th. The whole country watched it. And the next day, the papers were full of over half the country and all the polls were absolutely appalled and hated Franz to this day and Francisca and the church for honoring Franz. And they're right, if you think it through, because the church is now saying we were wrong, Franz was right, Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, who served for four years as a Nazi youth, was wrong. And nearly all the Catholics in Austria and Germany, who happily went off and became Nazis and soldiers and killed, were wrong. They were not following Jesus. Franz Jägerstatter is controversial up to this moment. I think he's one of the closest saints in recent history who resemble the early Christians, who were martyred as a matter of course. This is what we need today. Saints who inspire us to follow the nonviolent Jesus, who say no to war, resist the culture of war, speak out for peace, work for justice, and combine the full mystical and political dimensions of faith. That's why I hope, you know, Dorothy Day certainly is going to be canonized. Francisca should be canonized. The Berrigan should be canonized. We need saints who say no to war and fascism and weapons of mass destruction. After the beatification, Pax Christi Austria led us through the streets of Linz to the bishop's house. That's the same house for the bishop today as it was for a century. And we went into the reception room and looked around and there I saw boxes of posters announcing and celebrating the beatification of Franz Jägerstetter. It was in this very room that Franz went with Francisca to meet the bishop. Francisca wasn't allowed in, of course. So Franz goes in and meets the bishop and says, well, what about Jesus? And the bishop says, you need to go and become a good Nazi. And Franz came out to Francisca, practically in tears, and said, they don't, here's what she's told of Gordon's son, they don't take a, dare take a stand or they know it'll be their turn next. It was heartbreaking. Then we moved on to the courtyard of this little business plaza. And this building right in front of the parking lot here 
was taken over by the Nazis in 1938 and turned into the prison after the Anschluss for Western Austria. And this is where Franz was held for several months before he was shipped to Berlin. We could see the room and the window that was his cell on the second floor overlooking the courtyard. It's now an office that sells computer software. And I find that very uh, amazing, like you just cover up and move on. And that evening, the governor, though, of Western Austria had a huge feast, and Francisco was the guest of honor. And she, she was so happy, it felt like resurrection. Uh, here are some of the words, I wrote them down, that the Bishop of Linz said about Franz during the Mass. He's a prophet with a global view and penetrating insight, a shining example in his fidelity to the claims of conscience, an advocate of nonviolence and peace, a voice of prophetic warning against ideologies, a deep believing person for whom God really was the core and center of life. Wonderful. So you can't study Franz without talking about his dream. And um, this is something that I've thought about for over 40 years, and you had long discussions with Daniel and Philip Berrigan about it. So I'd like to reflect a little bit about this. It really was a terrifying nightmare, which Gordon Zahn first wrote about, which Francisca herself told me about, and which Franz wrote about. It happened in 1938. It was one of those once-in-a-lifetime dreams, you know, which is color and totally realistic. And he, you're like right there, and he's in a train station in this incredible massive train that can have a million people. It's all gold, it's pulling into the station. And there's millions and millions of people, and they're all cheering, and they're running to get on the train. And then Franz heard a voice from heaven say very sternly, this train is going to hell. And then he saw a vision of people suffering, terrifying. And he woke a terrible sweat, terrified, screaming. He woke Francisca up, as she told me. And then later, when he was in prison, he wrote a lot when he was in jail and prison. He wrote the whole account of the story. And he said, of course, what? The train symbolized Nazi patriotism, nationalism, which is a religion, violence, idolatry, war-making. And he said, whatever we do, we cannot get on board that train. In fact, we have to spend our lives helping people get off the train to hell, telling them not to get on the train. Well, over 80 years later, today, I think this terrifying nightmare given to one of the greatest saints in history still stands as a warning to all of us that it's not just about the Nazis, but about all fascism, all nationalism, all empires, racism, idolatry, war-making, our global rush to violence, killing, war, and nuclear weapons, including ours as Americans. His dream describes what's happening today as tens of millions of Americans cheer on, you could say, the American train of neo-fascism and racism and global military domination an endless permanent war, and environmental destruction. Franz would say, if you board this train, if we board this train, we're losing our souls. This is the train to hell. He said, we need to call people to jump off this train. And it's better to die jumping off the train. You go and do your homework and read this story. I think this dream is very important. 
Like Franz, we have to cry out, don't get on the train of nationalism, war, racism, and fascism. Don't support this culture of war. Don't make nuclear weapons or join the military or allow racism and corporate greed to continue silently in your name. Seek the kingdom of God instead. So on that note, I want to offer several concluding lessons that I've learned about Franz. I think mostly I made these up for this reflection because I've been mulling on Franz for over a month now. First, to state the obvious, Franz believed that if you are a Christian, if you're a Catholic, then you are forgiven, you are forbidden to kill, period. You're not allowed to join your military or kill the enemy of your country. Instead, you have to be nonviolent and love everyone, including your enemy, period. Is there a problem there? Here's a quote from Franz, and there's lots of them in his letters and writings. This is just one. As a Christian, I prefer to do my fighting with the word of God and not with arms. We need no rifles or pistols for our battle, but instead spiritual weapons, and the foremost among these is prayer. So let us love our enemies and bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us, for we will conquer and we will endure for all eternity, for happy are they who live and die in God's love. So I interpret that to, to mean Franz saying, Refuse to fight, refuse to kill, refuse to be complicit in the culture of war, refuse to compromise. Instead, practice the total nonviolence and universal love of Jesus and resist. Non-cooperate with the culture of war. Here's another Franz quote. Boy, listen to this. Through his bitter suffering and death, Christ freed us only from eternal death. What? Christ only freed us from eternal death, not from temporal suffering and mortal death. But Christ, too, demands a public confession of our faith, just as the Fuhrer does, as Adolf Hitler does for his followers. The commandments of God teach us, of course, that we must render obedience to secular rulers, but only to the extent that they do not order us to do anything evil, for we must obey God rather than men. Actually, I think the gospel, Franz, I'm correcting you here, doesn't say anywhere about rendering obedience to secular rulers. It's St. Paul does that in Romans 13. But that comes after Romans 12, which is a total brilliant uh, exposition of nonviolence. But uh, the Acts of the Apostles, throughout that, the, uh, the saints are always saying over and over, hey, we'd love to kill for you, you Romans, but I got Jesus, and we, are, we must obey God rather than men. And I'm using the sexist language there, men. So, uh, but what, wasn't that powerful what Franz says? Just as Hitler, the Fuhrer, requires a public confession, which is what they did, so too does Jesus. You know, and how far do you want to go and confess? Second, in 1964, you may remember from my podcast on Thomas Merton, Merton hosted the FOR Peacemakers Retreat at Gethsemane, where the Berrigans went and many other friends. And during the retreat, Merton's talk was on Franz Jägerstatter. Now, think of that. That's 1964. As soon as he heard about Franz Jägerstatter, Merton started writing about him and thinking about him for the rest of his life. But Merton's message to the Berrigans and the peace movement was is, is interesting. We need to make sure this never happens again, that some devout saintly Christian and his wife 
have to stand totally alone like this. And he made this impassioned plea. He said, we need to form groups and movements and communities of peace and justice to help each other take that stand for peace and support one another, especially those who are taking greater risks, like Franz did, like the plowshares activists are doing today, like my friend Father Steve Kelly, who's in prison now. Uh, and so that we have strength and encouragement to speak out in one voice against our nation's wars and fascism and racism and injustice. If we keep building communities and movements of peace and justice, not only will people not be alone, but more people will join them, this public work because it's going to be easier to stand up publicly as it becomes more contagious and we turn the tide. So that leads to hope. My third point, Franz teaches us to hope and it's the hope that has hope when there is no hope, if you will. Now, this is Gordon Zahn's conclusion. So I'm quoting Gordon here. The crucial lesson to be learned is that however hopeless the situation or seemingly futile the effort, the Christian need not despair. Instead, he can and should be prepared to accept and assert moral responsibility for his actions. It is always possible, as Franz wrote, to save one's own soul and to take a public stand for Christ, and then also to save others by bearing individual witness against evil. You know, in the end, worse comes to worse, you can take a, your own individual stand. Fourth, I wasn't going to put this in, but I'm putting this in maybe just for my own sake, first of all. Franz never gave up on the church. Even though every single priest, pastor, chaplain, and bishop he knew advised him, advised him to join the Nazis. Especially because you've got a wife and three little girls, they said. You, need, you most of all need to be a good Nazi. He held his ground, he felt sad, and he prayed for him. Now, you and I get mad at the smallest, slightest things in the church. Franz, you know, he was really hurt. Um, but he saw that as the community of faith and the community of Jesus, and Franz stood up, stepped up to the plate. He is the church. He's the best in the church. Then, so on the day of his ex execution, we know that the, the priest in Berlin was a chaplain, was allowed in to visit the prisoners. So he got in to see Franz. And he had a short time, and he later, I think Gordon met him and told a lot about Franz Jägerstatter. Well, he told Franz that there was an Austrian priest. I'm going to give you his name, Father Franz Reinisch, his name also is Franz, who had been executed by the Nazis for refusing to join the military and fight, fight. Franz didn't know there was anyone else, much less a priest who was killed or going to be killed. And this gave him great strength. We now know, by the way, there were 4,000 priests killed by the Nazis. But that means, of course, tens of thousands who were not. But think about this. Franz tried to reach out to every bishop and priest he could and ask them, how seriously do, are we supposed to go to follow Jesus and his gospel teachings of love and nonviolence? What does it mean to take up the cross? And they all said, oh, you don't have to go that far. You don't really have to do this. You never disobey the state. And that's anti-gospel. That is not, Jesus was crucified, executed by the state. That's why Franz is such a great saint. But I move that Franz tried to engage them and teach them. And so that's why I decided 40 years ago to try to do the same. I'm using, I've always used Franz as my model in many, many ways. So I, I've met a lot of priests and bishops 
and cardinals and popes, and every single one I've met, I've tried to talk to them about the nonviolence of Jesus and encourage them to take public stands against war and violence and preach and teach gospel nonviolence. And I think that's what we all have to do, like Franz, to reach out to our religious leaders, to every priest, pastor, minister, bishop, and cardinal, and urge them to speak out boldly against war, racism, poverty, and nuclear weapons, to study and learn the nonviolence of Jesus, and then to teach and preach that. They will never do this, dear friends, unless we go to them and teach them. Fifth, Oh, these build up. Like Jesus, Franz shows us how to pray, how to love, how to resist, how to take a public stand, how to suffer, and how to die, not how to kill. This is critical. It sounds so simple. Any kindergarten would understand it, but we don't get this. Jesus teaches us how to live and die. Not once does he teach us how to kill or support the culture of war or our racist, racist, fascist leaders, then and now. So if you think about it, okay, Franz has two choices. He's going to die no matter what. No, let me put it bluntly. He's going to be killed no matter what. If he, uh, the end is at hand. He's either going to die on the front, as all his friends did, with a gun and shoot and kill people, or he's going to die in prison. Now, I'm putting it simply, and so what everybody else did is, you know, well, I'm going to try to survive being on the Russian front. Of course, they were all killed. None of Franz's friends survived. But Franz saw a deeper difference, which we rarely honor. His back is against the wall, and he's thinking, okay, I can die wearing the Nazi uniform, carrying a gun, and maybe even killing other human beings. Or I can die not wearing the Nazi uniform and be unarmed like Jesus and not have a gun and not hurt or kill anyone. He said, that's what Jesus did. So that's what I'm going to do. I invite you to pray over this, to consider if we have the courage to live and love and suffer and die nonviolently, unarmed like Jesus. This has been my argument and conversation with hundreds of thousands of people, especially when it comes to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There is another choice, uh, and I'm talking about, first of all, in World War II, but up till today. You know, you can resist. You can go to prison and be a conscientious objector, as many people did uh, during the Vietnam War, and as people are doing today, resisting. But worse comes to worse. You don't have to kill. If you're going to die, you can be brave like Jesus and Franz and die unarmed and leave that witness for history. And now the whole of Austria is talking about Franz Jägerstatter. It's bearing fruit. Sixth, Franz demonstrates a dangerous new political mysticism, a sanctity that is a threat to the empire. And I think this has to become the new norm. Our prayer should be a threat to fascism to warfare, to empire. Our spirituality of nonviolence, like Franz Jägerstatter, should and will lead us to disarm our hearts, disarm others, and together to try to disarm the nation and the nations of the world. So they said, you know, in jail, the other prisoners, the survivors, said Franz prayed all day long. Uh, 
and you know he prayed all throughout his life once he met Francisca he received communion as often as possible he became a person in other words of deep mystical prayer and he made the connection between spirituality and gospel politics and he was not afraid to face and accept the social and political implications of prayer of the gospel and of living discipleship to Jesus which means the cross which means saying no to the Nazis and getting beheaded. You knew what was going to happen to him. So there he's praying in a cell, and I think this is in the movie, and it's an hour before he's beheaded, and the chaplain comes in to visit him. And he brought him communion, and he heard his confession, and he had brought a gift to give to Franz, a Bible. And Franz, so the chaplain lived many years and told everybody this. Franz politely thanked him and said, no thanks for the Bible. And he said, quote, now listen to this. These are the last words of Franz Jägerstatter. I am completely united with God. And so any reading would disrupt my union with God. The priest was utterly dumbstruck and kind of backed out of the cell and for years afterwards told people about Franz and said, He's the only saint I ever met. In the letter that Franz wrote to Francisca that day, he said, listen to this sentence, the heart of Jesus, the heart of Mary, and my heart are one, united for time and eternity. Wow, who says that? That's one of the greatest, most powerful spiritual testimonies ever made. St. Francis didn't say that. We know Mother Teresa didn't say that. She testified how far she felt from God, as did most of the saints. That's not what Franz is saying. And by the way, thank you, Jesus, for showing up to Franz. I mean, if there was a great saint who needed that, it's Franz Jägerstatter. And I, there's no way Jesus is not going to be right there with him. Franz knew it. That, dear friends, should be our goal, too. To have our hearts completely united with Jesus and Mary and God. But Franz says, if you want to do that, you have to start praying nonstop. You have to speak out and take a stand for justice and peace publicly nonstop. You have to embody the nonviolence and peacemaking of Jesus and be willing to go forward in faith every step of the way to the cross and resurrection. Which brings me to my last point. Um, I think the nonviolent life and death of Franz Jägerstatter compel us to take a stand for justice, disarmament, equality, creation, and peace. We are probably most likely not going to be beheaded. We might be arrested and jailed for civil disobedience, but okay, you're probably going to get put down or opposed or harassed for speaking out. But I think speaking out and taking a stand in light of Franz Jägerstatter in this dark hour of national and global fascism was just threatening the very existence of the planet way beyond what Franz was up against. You know, we're on the verge of destroying the whole planet. So speaking out now is a spiritual requirement. We have no excuse for not speaking out, for not taking a stand, as Franz did, and have everybody in the village reject him. We have to agitate and rock the boat and break up the apathy and indifference in this country and publicly call for an end to war-making, executions, I'll go through the list again. Poverty, greed, racism, sexism, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, and yes, what we're witnessing in our country today, fascism. 
I think our humanity is at stake, and Franz is right, our very souls are at stake. If we don't speak out and don't take a stand, we lose our humanity. Franz, in other words, shows us how to be human. And I say, let's go for it. We're going to die anyway, so what have we got to lose? What are you afraid of? What are we afraid of? If we get harassed for our stand or others get mad at us, then we get to practice nonviolence like Jesus. Great. It's great. But I do think we need to take more risks for the gospel. So, dear friends, thanks for listening. I'm sorry I go on and on. I hope you appreciated this reflection on Franz, and I urge you to Google him and study him and get the book and see the movie, A Hidden Life, and then to go and continue to do your part to follow the nonviolent Jesus and take a public stand like Franz did. So please join our campaign nonviolence uh, day-long uh, online conference on August 8th. That will be all about nonviolence. Richard Rohr, Erica Chenoweth, myself, Reverend Lennox Yearwood are going to be speaking and others. Please join our evening online commemoration, August 6th, for the 75th anniversary of Hiroshima. I'll be the host for that, and uh, we'll be featuring Roshi, Joan Halifax, and Dyra, Dr. Ira Helfand of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which won the, new, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. And then join us in September for the Campaign Nonviolence National Week of Action and speak out against racism, poverty, war, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction. And you can find all of that at pacebene.org. Please support these peace podcasts, too, on social media if you can, and tell your friends and relatives um, to listen to my talks and help promote them. That'd be a big help. Thank you so much. Peace be with you, and God bless you. Mm -hmm.